provides. I don't know where the bulletin came from, but it just showed up, and I needed a bulletin. I forgot one. Uh, so thank you, Jesus, for that bulletin. A couple things before I get started in uh, preaching. Uh, one is that since Mark brought sandwiches, I can go extra long today. Uh, if you forgot your sandwich, then loaves and fishes, baby, loaves and fishes. <laughs> Uh, a second, I just want to celebrate uh, an answered prayer uh, that we prayed for a church uh, over and over and over again. I forgot to raise up multiple uh, instrumentalists and musicians and vocalists uh, for us as a congregation. So that when somebody needed a day off or when a volunteer musician could be here, uh, we would still be able to enjoy uh, music and sing together. And God's done that. And so uh, today, uh, Svetlana's in Belarus somewhere, and Keely's off Galavan somewhere else, and they're all having a great time, and we still get to sing and enjoy music. Our God has raised up multiple musicians and more vocalists, and so we're just thankful for you guys. Thank you for serving and for blessing us with the instruments that God created. Um, we're in a sermon series called Why Work, which is on vocation and why the secular work we do, the, the quote-unquote day jobs that we work, uh, the quote-unquote secular work we do is actually holy and matters to God. And if it doesn't, it should be, and it's time for a career change. And I've recommended several resources to you. I've recommended uh, these two books. This is Every Good Endeavor by Timothy Keller. Great book, very, very readable. Uh, Tim Keller's books are always published in like one and a half uh, spacing, and so it looks bigger than it actually is. I think he does that because he gets paid by the page or something. Uh, this is a book called Letters to a Diminished Church by Dorothy Sayers. And there's an essay in there called Why Work. It shares the title with this sermon series. And lastly, if you're specifically a business person, maybe you're in banking, finance, maybe you run your own business, you're an entrepreneur, um, and you're in the profit-making business, that's what you do. Your job is to maximize profits. Uh, then I would love to commend you this book. Not look like much. It does not look like something I would pick off on the shelf. It looks like a dollar store reject book. It's called Why Business Matters to God. Not a little, there's no creativity in the title. It's by a dude named Jeff Van Duzer. Jeff Van Duzer. Why Business Matters to God. And it is exceptional. It is incredible. If you are a business person, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. If you're in business, I would say get this book before you get this book. But get both of them eventually. Um, there's a podcast, there's actually a, a talk on our blog by this guy, Jeff Van Duser. He is the dean of the business school at Seattle Pacific University. And his thinking, that talk is the clearest exposition I've heard on how Christianity should inform the way we go about business. Uh, those things, what it really was. Yeah, and then another one, I'm just really thankful for our church staff. Um, from Sarah to Keely to Cheryl um, to our musicians. Um, our, you guys are just doing a great job. So deep. If you got your Bible, I pray you do. We're one of our, we get to live in one of the countries where it's legal to own this book, where there are copies available all over the place. I would ask you to take it out. Turn to Genesis chapter 11. We will look at uh, a relatively uh, well-known story in the Bible. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. So if you're new to the scriptures, just open the front cover and turn to you see a big number 11. And we're going to start right there with the story of the Tower of uh, Babel. The Bible says this. It says, 
Now the whole world has one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord says, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. And they stopped building that city. That is why it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Friends, the grass withers and flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This is God's word. God's slaves, but as God's collaborators. 
that God gave us uh, several kinds of work to do. That he uh, first taught us to make disciples. He said, be fruitful and multiply. To make people who are aware of God and love God and make disciples. Both through biological children, but also through spiritual reproduction. And then he says, and fill the earth and subdue it. That you and I have been commanded by God to take the raw material of creation. Whether that's dirt and seeds and cultivate a garden, whether that's unformed, uh, untutored children's minds and to teach them vocabulary until they are an articulate, thoughtful, thinking, rational creature capable of loving God with all their mind and all their heart and all their soul. Whether that's um, taking metal alloys and forming them into tractors or automobiles or taking uh, chemicals from some plant or a synthetic and making it into a pharmaceutical that you and I are called to take the raw materials of creation and to grow, to, to cultivate them in all their artistic and creative ways. So for some of us, that's going to be like taking the raw material of kale and quinoa and making some delicious little raw salad. You can't eat quinoa raw, that would be gross. But for others of us, we're going to be taking this stinky little hog, cooking them low and slow for 10 or 12 hours. I digress. We also talked about the fact that work is broken. That work has never been the pure blessing that God intended it to. That was the cause of the fall because you and I rebelled against God. Our lives have been affected um, with this sense of inadequacy, of fear, of shame, and exposure. And so we work. Uh, our work reflects this disconnect with God. And we either attend towards earned work when we hide from God and hide from the work he's called us to do. Or blame, when we blame others for our failures, our inadequacies. Or we tend towards overwork, or we costume ourselves and make ourselves into a profession. Or we justify and dominate our exploitation of others. And today I want to continue down that language. Because you know from your experience that work is broken. That work does not feel like a blessing often. Often it feels like a curse. And that often it feels like... Uh, Mark Twain was correct when he said that work is a necessary evil to be avoided. And so today, I want to tell you a few stories as we dive into this. Uh, this past week, God taught me this lesson again in two ways. First on, uh, last week, last weekend, I was supposed to go to a, a ministry conference with Sarah down in Dallas, Texas. It was this week, and I was supposed to go, and I was excited. We've been planning this for six uh, eight months. We've planned it. We bought tickets, airfare, hotels, um, rental cars, the whole deal. And because of the incredible things happening in my family, I could not go. I, I couldn't go. It would have been unwise and foolish and, and silly of me to go. But last week, last week as I got ready to preach, I was stressed out to the max. I was ashamed that I couldn't go. I was scared of what the conversations would go like. When I had to tell Sarah that I wasn't going, when I had to tell the elders of this church that I could not go, then I had to say, I can't go. Because I was afraid that I would be judged as less good of a pastor, less committed to my work, if I said I need to be with my family and I'm willing to keep the cost of this trip in order to be a dad and a husband first. I was afraid of how that would come across, and so I freaked out. And it took me, it took all the courage I had, and then just some gusto and get it done to do the things I needed to do to make that, uh, to tell people I wasn't going. And that may seem like a big deal, uh, to back out on a, a, a work trip, 
But then yesterday, I was painting my back deck. And the spirit, in a span of five minutes, all three of my boys came out, walked down the stairs I just painted. And when I told them to get off the deck I had just painted, stepped onto the timbers that I had just painted. And I told the first one, which was the youngest, to get off. And he got, and then so I stepped on the other one and got off finally. The middle one came off, did the exact same thing. And the oldest came off, did the same thing. And I lost my temper. I raised my voice. And in exasperation and frustration, I sinned against my boys. By yelling at them for doing something they didn't know was wrong. They had no idea that that stuff had been painted, that, that they were doing this. And I realized that day that work, that creative effort, whether it's here in my occupation or whether it's just a simple house project that gets wrapped up in my head. It gets wrapped up in who I am, and I'm really protective of it, and I'm scared of losing it. And so God reminded me that work exposes our idols. Work exposes the idols of my heart. And so what is an idol? What's an idol? Well, the first commandment in the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not have any other gods before God. There's not an option of having no gods. The first commandment says you will either worship God or you will worship something else. But you cannot worship nothing. Bob Dylan said you've got to serve somebody. An idol is anything we put before God in our lives. It's anything in creation that I bow down to, that I love, that I serve, that I derive meaning from over God. An idol is anything in creation that I imagine will give me the control, the security, the significance, the satisfaction, and the beauty that only God can give me. Maybe that's going to make sense. So fill in the blanks in these sentences in your own head. If I just had blank, then everything would be better. If we can just fix blank, life would finally be manageable. If blank would just go away, life would be cake. If blank were in charge, then finally uh, the business would work, or the country would work, or the world would work. This, this, this will make me happy. This will, will satisfy me. This will make me safe. This will make me significant. In Genesis chapter 11, which I just read, provides this incredible case study of the, the intricate, intricate connection between work and idols. In a fallen world, work and idolatry are going to work hand in hand because work is one of the things that we do most of the time. The Bible said, six days you will work, and on the seventh you will rest. That's an odd sentence. If I were designing the word, if I were God, I would have said, you know, one day you will work, six you will depart. <laughs> but he didn't. He said six days you will work, and one day you will rest. And, and we know that we need work to be satisfied and to, to live a fulfilled life. And we've talked about that before. And so Babel is going to show us how those six days often pollute the seventh day. How our vocation can often replace the one who has called us to work. So the Tower of Babel, we see in the first verse, in the second verse, uh, that, that an opportunity presents itself, that there's this um, place, this Shinar Valley, where they're at the right time, in the right moment, they see an opportunity and they seize it. And there's this technological advance that accompanies that. You see that they said, let's make bricks and let's bake them thoroughly. This was a brand new idea in the Bible. Up to this point, people had built with stones. But when they got to Shinar, there weren't any stones. And so they had to come up with new technology to fit a real need. They needed shelter. They needed a place to live. And they, 
And, and technology was innovated to meet that need and good, great, awesome, wonderful. Technological innovation is, a, is part of God's mandate to cultivate the earth. And so creating bricks and using tar as mortar is this beautiful, awesome, wonderful thing that we should celebrate. Some of you live in brick houses. Others of you dreamed of living in a brick house one day. And then you realize that you just didn't want to spend your money on bricks. But we see that they sit down and they, they come together and they say, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly and use brick instead of stone. And say, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? Why do they want to build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens? Well, one trick in Bible study or in grammar, if you are a grammar a snob, then you understand that the next words are what's called a purpose clause. The words so that are a purpose clause. They tell you the purpose. They tell you the reason, the motivating influence of why they want to build a city. There's nothing wrong with building cities or even building giant buildings. There's nothing inherently simple about that. Noah built a giant boat, and it was righteous. These people built a giant tower, and it's idolatrous. So it's not the size of the technology it's the motivation. And so here we see so that they say two reasons that they want to build this thing. Now, I think these are important because we'll expose idols on our work. The first is so that we may make a name for ourselves. If you're writing your Bible, you might want to underline that. Make a name for ourselves. It's to that phrase in the Bible, in the Bible language, in this time, in this context, means uh, to construct an identity for oneself. It means to construct a, a, who I am, what I'm about, my worth, my significance. It means to prove that I have a value, that it is to, to maximize my glory, my power, my autonomy. If you went to a liberal arts school, uh, then there's a good chance you read uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, in which there's this desire to build something that will last after, and they can have this name written upon it. It's part of why uh, the, the Egyptians built pyramids. It's part of why I'm here in, in Babylon, here in the Middle East, they built what are called ziggurats. That's what the word tower is. It's a, it's a ziggurat. It looks like a stair-step pyramid. They couldn't quite get the walls straight, so they made stairs. It was actually by intention. They thought of it as a stairway from earth to heaven. Ziggurats. And it was to make a name for themselves, to make themselves something, to prove their worth, their, their significance, to give themselves value and purpose, to say, finally, I've arrived. I matter. Everyone, look at me. How do you like me now? In the words of a country song. And we do this as well. We let idols control our work all the times when we say things like when we choose a career based on respectability rather than suitability and ability to serve. Right now, I don't know if you've realized this, uh, 40, 50 years ago, uh, some of the best and the brightest were channeled towards uh, service occupations like teachers, uh, like uh, working for the government, uh, even before that into the Army Corps of Engineers and the best engineers and civil engineers and thinkers and mathematicians uh, went into solving uh, creation's biggest questions, the country's biggest questions. Uh, lately, if you're ex the, the top uh, students are more often than not channeled into uh, the financial sector right now. That's just where they all end up uh, congregating towards Wall Street, towards, um, towards consulting work, towards investment banking. And so uh, me graduating college with a degree in mathematics because I love mathematics 
I was interviewing with consulting firms, not because it was something I was passionate about, just because that's what the math department did. That's who we were. And I almost chose that based on respectability, then suitability, on call in my life. It's not just education. Other of us, you remember this ancient thing called an MRS degree? It was literally, I'm going to college to make a name for myself. Because my value, my worth comes from being a wife, comes from being a mother, comes from being a homemaker, satisfied. That's who I am. That is what will make me have status and position. That'll give me a name greater than so and so. I just went to uh, my five. Ten-year college reunion. I just went to my ten-year college reunion, and I remember for the first time in my life. I told you guys about this. The pressure to not be embarrassed about. I would watch people uh, with embarrassment tell me what they did for a living. In my own heart, trying to to get constantly remind myself that I am not what these people think of me. That I get to do something that is unbelievable. That is a blessing beyond my lifetime. Maybe for you. Um, you're a stay-at-home parent. And every time somebody says, so what do you do for a living? You kind of have to find yourself apologizing for the fact that you don't have a nine-to-five. He's already making a name for himself. The second thing we see that they did here is that they said, so that we will not be scattered across the earth. The first was a, a, a hunt for significance. They prop up this idol. Their work becomes a meaning-making endeavor to give their life meaning to give their life significance. The second, so that we will not be scattered, their work becomes an effort to create security, a sense of refuge, a sense of safety, a sense of uh, not just not just individual identity, but a sense of we are we-ness, a sense of corporate identity. To secure for themselves the security and the protection. That's what they want to build a city that they can all inhabit, a city with walls and protection. It is to make sure that they are, are safe. And our work can often devolve into this security, this protection-seeking endeavor where we take a job that's safe or that we use our job just to accumulate enough wealth that we finally feel like we're impermeable to sickness or death, even though we know we're not. But there's this nagging suspicion that something's wrong and something's coming after me, and I have to constantly be moving forward. Maybe you know this, this, this fear, this, this insecurity, this, this driving force that you're not safe. And that's one of the reasons why you already planned to do some work this afternoon, because you know that if you don't work this afternoon, the other guy is. And so it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there, and you've got to be constantly one step ahead of the hitman. That's a Latin reference, if any of you guys know that. Uh, some of you are like, I don't know what that is. It's on VHS tape, made by Disney. But this is also talking about collective identity competitive, nationalistic identity. And in our country right now, we just had, uh, there's this sense in which this has been true in the past, but this, is, this competitiveness, this collectiveness, this we versus them, this us versus them, uh, this we are stronger together, my people matter than everybody else, uh, that has led to, com to commercial exploitation of other groups of people, other races, and uh, the peculiar institution of slavery in the South, uh, through uh, even to modern day, uh, through uh, nationalistic exploitation of Africa and the developing world right now, as um, uh, in in Nambia, uh, in 
colonies and uh, the disenfranchisement, this economic disenfranchisement of specific groups of people. But all of it comes from this nagging suspicion, am I significant, am I safe? Am I significant, am I safe? There's this knowledge inside of each of us deep at a soul level that I need an identity, that I need a savior, that I need a creator, and I need a redeemer, that all my effort appear, uh, that all my effort, all human effort apart from Christ will even be an effort to create myself or to save myself is what the Bible shows us. That all work cut off from Jesus, all work under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, will be motivated from an effort to create myself or to save myself. And God knows this is the case. God knows that this is how our work will be manipulated and twisted and broken and, and, and severed. And so God has built into the rhythm of work, part of the goal of work, part of the, the rhythm of work, this thing called a Sabbath. And the reason we read it from both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, the two places that the Ten Commandments show up, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the reason I read it in both is because the Sabbath is given as a command in both, but the rationale is different in each place. And the rationale in Exodus and the rationale in Deuteronomy cover the two idols of the human heart that were motivating the work in Babel. Look in Exodus uh, 20. In Exodus chapter 20, which is, uh, take a right out of Genesis and keep going, and uh, you'll find Exodus with a big number 20. You'll see uh, that it says, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Only you shall do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male nor your female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days, you see that word for in verse 11? That word for is telling you why, the because, the reason, the justification, the rationale for why there's a Sabbath. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. In Exodus chapter 7, you, are, you and I are to work hard, to work, uh, to, to work cultivating, collaborating with God for six days, but then we are to rest, to take Sabbath, to enjoy creation on the seventh day because God rested. Because God rested. Because God sat down after six days and said, man, it is very good. And so what did God do on the seventh day? God enjoyed his work. God enjoyed the fruit of his labor. God enjoyed a community with the rational, relational creatures he made. He enjoyed community with us. God is the creator. You are the created. Remember that. That I can take a day off because I am not the one making myself. That I was made. That God sat down on the seventh day because he had made you well enough. Because your identity is made. It is given. You don't have to make a name for yourself because God has already given you a name. You don't have to make an identity for yourself. Your identity is that you are the beloved creature of God. Whom God took a whole day just to sit back and enjoy. God just took a whole back day just to sit back and enjoy. He wants community with you. He has created you for himself. And if we don't sit back and just get that identity, that our value is not in the quality of my work, but in the quality of God's work, 
Meaning that my identity didn't come from what I made, but my identity comes from the fact that God made me, that I'm made in the image of God, that I will constantly be working like a slave trying to make my identity. To sit back and just relate to God, to just sit back and enjoy God. We must take the time each day, each week, to remind ourselves that our work doesn't give us value. That our work comes out of our value, which was given to us by God. That I don't have to make my identity, because God has made me and given me my identity. That's the first justification for the Sabbath. That's the first thing we're supposed to be doing, not just on Sundays, but every time we sit down from our labor at night to remember every time I have to step back away from my work and say, no, I have to say, you don't define me. God defines me. My work is not what I, who I am. I am not a preacher. I am a child of God. But look at Deuteronomy. This may be even harder for us to hear. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a different rationale. There's a different reason given for the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says the exact same thing. Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you to do. And the rationale is in verse 15. Deuteronomy 5, 15. It says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you, brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath. You see why you are taking the Sabbath? You see what God just pointed out? It doesn't say anything about God wrestling. It says you were a slave. You were a slave, but God has saved you. Do you know how many days off slaves get? None. Do you know how many slave days off Pharaoh gave? Zero. That's why the Israelites, remember what Moses goes to ask for the first time? He didn't ask for, let them my people go. He says, give us a day to go worship God. Because they don't even have a day to go worship God. That was the first request. Let us go worship God. Give us a day off to worship. And God is saying, you can rest because God is your Savior. Because God has saved you. You were a slave. You were unable to rest because you were taking orders. Because you were exploited. You were a slave. You were a slave. Friends, if you cannot put away work, if you cannot take a day off, if you cannot take a Sabbath, if you cannot take vacation, then you are a slave. You say that again. If you cannot take Sabbath, nevertheless a day off, and your vacation, then you are not free. You are a slave to your work. You are a slave. You are living as a slave, either to your boss or to your identity, or to your seeking, or to your family's demands of you monetarily, but you are a slave. And God doesn't want you to be a slave. It is for freedom that he has set you free. On the flip side of that, let me just say this too. If your employees don't get days off, if they can't take Sabbath or day off or vacation to enjoy the fruit of their labor, if they're not compensated well enough to be able to do that. And you are a pharaoh. Now let me tell you to love you. Pharaohs, pharaohs are slaves too. The reason their workers can't take off the pharaohs constantly got to achieve. And so even when he's not working, somebody else has got to be working for him. Because pharaoh is a slave to progress, a slave to advancement, a slave to achievement. Deuteronomy is saying, Deuteronomy is saying, you can worse, but God is your Savior. 
God is your security. God is your deliverer. God is your protection. That guy who's gunning for your job, God is your protection. That um, person who uh, thinks you are a bad parent, God is your protection. That person who is judging your career choices, God is your protection. You are not a slave to people's opinions of you or society's evaluation of your role. You are not a slave. You are a free child of God. And so, friends, we see that the Sabbath, this thing that got built into creation, built into the relationship with work, is intimately involved in us remembering that we don't get our identity from work. We don't work to make a name for ourselves, but we also don't work to save ourselves. But scary, though, is that the Bible very clearly says these are really the only... This idolatry, this I am what I do idolatry is so rooted in our hearts that the fundamental difference between Christianity and everything else, the fundamental difference between a non-believer, an unsaved, unregenerate person, and a saved person is the difference between a religion of works and a religion of faith. The difference between work and faith, work between work and rest, between wages and gift, between uh, between labor and trust. This man Donald Miller, he wrote a book called uh, "Blue Like Jazz" and "Searching for God Knows What" and "Through Pain and Deserts." But he says, if you could step back and see creation as God sees it, what you would see is a lifeboat. But it looks like the way we live, the primary ethic of our lives is what he calls the lifeboat mentality. By which he says, it's almost as if we're all sitting there on the Titanic and there's one lifeboat left and it'll only hold six of us. And so we're all trying to prove that we deserve a spot in that lifeboat. Some of us are saying, but I'm a doctor, I can help you if you get sick on that boat. Some of you are saying, but I'm a mother, I'm carrying the next generation in my belly. Others of us are saying, uh, but I have experience and life-saving skills. Others are saying, but I'm rich and, and, I, and I have money and resources. Others are saying, I'm connected and I have popularity. Others are saying, I'm fun, I'm likable, I won't cause any trouble. Others are saying, I'm strong, I'm beautiful. All of us are trying to prove that we deserve a seat in the lifeboat, trying to save ourselves through justification based on our actions and what we can do and what we can offer. The problem is even if we argue our way into that boat through our work, through our labor, through our effort, through our vocation, through our identity, what we don't know is that there's a waterfall ahead. Is everybody in the boat that's too? And that Savior has come to you and said, not because of what you have done, because of what I have done, you can rest. You, not because you have to earn my favor, not because you have to build a staircase to heaven, but because the one in heaven came down to rescue you, to carry you back on his shoulders to his Father's table. Not because you have earned it, not because you have worked hard enough, because he has worked on your behalf. You can trust, you can sit back, you can relax, you can receive God's goodness. You see, everybody will either try to make their name, or they will receive a name. This is in, you saw this uh, with Peter, who was uh, called Simon, and then Jesus renames him. You saw this with uh, Paul, who was called Saul, and Jesus renamed, renames him. We see this in the book of Revelation. 
where the one says, to the overcomer, I will speak a secret name. I will give them a new name. Friends, if you have been trying to make your own identity, it is a fruitless endeavor. We have an identity. God wants to give you that's better than anything you have dared to dream or not. You, 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 according to the Bible, sinner that you are, God has put his affection on you. In this great world, God didn't die for Mount Everest. He didn't die for diamonds or gold. He didn't die for dogs or cats. He died for you. He died for you. And until you rest in that love, until you receive that identity given to you, then everything you do will be striving, will be trying to prove your identity or trying to save your life. Once you receive what God wants to offer you, everything you do is great. It's collaboration with the one who is still out there rescuing people fighting for a life of Everything you do will actually be a service to the world. But you won't have to get it. You'll get it. Jesus, your word says in Hebrews chapter 4 that there is now open to us a Sabbath rest that is not just a day or a religious practice, but is a soul level rest, a heart, a soul that leans in God's love as if it were a hammock that floats in your grace like a child floating on their back in an ocean that just trusts you, that knows you are here. And so even when my hands are busy on a keyboard, even when my mind is racing with work, even when I am sweating on a rooftop, my heart, my soul is at rest because I have nothing to prove. Everything in my life is a gift. Jesus, if we're honest, there's not a single person in here who lives with that mentality all the time. But even if I got ready to walk to this pulpit to preach these words, I was anxious for people to like me, to approve of me. I was anxious to impress the visitors here because I'm still in a balance. But we want that rest. We want to trust you. We want to work from a place of security, a place of safety, a place of identity. Maybe that's you. Maybe this morning you're realizing you've lived your whole life fighting for a spot in the life box. And you're hearing of a God who not only wants to give you a spot in the life box, who wants to bring you safe and sound home. Who wants to love you and cherish you and provide for you and build you up. And you're saying, yes, please. You want to say yes to what Jesus is offering? You can do so this morning. It's as easy as ABC. First, we just admit that I've been running my own life and trying to earn God's favor. The Bible calls this sin. And then B, believe that Jesus died on the cross to save you and to forgive you. And C, commit to following Jesus for the rest of your life. And you can do that with a simple prayer. There's no magic words or incantations. Just with the heartfelt words of your heart. The sincere words. 
something like, Jesus, I've been trying to earn your love, but now I see I already have it. I believe you died on the cross to save me from my bad decisions, from my own sins and failures. So I commit to following you the rest of my life, for richer or poor, better or worse, come what may, I am yours and you are mine. Friends, not because we have to, but because we get to.